I, I know that Martin has, has for some time been wanting to bring Kierkegaard into dialogue with Ibn Arabi and, and this is an interesting thing to do in some ways it's, it's perhaps an unlikely thing to want to do because you could see the thought world of Ibn Arabi and the thought world of Kierkegaard as really being in two very different places between which there might not seem to be many obvious con connections probably in the case of Kierkegaard that might rest on uh, a large body of misconceptions as to what his thought is about. And that's in a way where I'll, I'll begin with some of the misconceptions. Now, I'm not going to use the word spirit a lot in, in this talk, uh, but in a sense, the talk flows towards Kierkegaard's definition of spirit and what it is for a human being to be spirit and then moves on to some of the implications and developments of that. Now I'm presupposing that a significant number of people here know next to nothing about Kierkegaard and quite a few people know a, a bit uh, more or less and maybe ha have, have read some bits. So um, I, I'm aware that you know, some people may kind of not get certain bits, but I hope I don't presuppose too much uh, knowledge. And it's always useful to start, I mean, absolutely at the beginning, in a sense, with dates. You know, Kierkegaard was a Dane. Uh, I'm saying his name not as Danes would say it, but sort of halfway between how English and Danes say it. So it's neither too pretentious nor too, too wrong, hopefully. Um, so Kierkegaard lived between 1813 and 1855. So in the first half of the 19th century, uh, essentially a period uh, very influenced by romanticism uh, and by idealist philosophy, both in its romantic and in its Hegelian versions. Um, he was Danish, but Denmark at that time had very strong cultural connections with Germany uh, and Kierkegaard, amongst other things, studied at the University of Berlin and, and was in uh, intense dialogue with German thought at the time. So that's just a, a little bit of placing him. You'll also infer from what I said that he was only 42 years old when he died. Most of his books were in fact uh, published within a kind of five year period of, of that life and enormously productive. I mean you could say really he burnt himself out uh, writing in his dedication to his, his task of, of writing which uh, I'll, I'll come on to that in a moment. I mean, I suppose he's become best known. I mean, one will most often encounter him, at least in the 20th century, often referred to as the, the forefather of existentialism and one of the founding figures of existentialist philosophy. And that might seem, as I say, to make him a difficult partner, a conversation partner for anything to do with spirituality, uh, because existentialism, at least in its best known representatives, such as Jean-Paul Sartre, took a standpoint of radical atheism, radical rejection uh, of anything that might smack of spirituality in just about any possible sense of the word. Uh, for, for Sartre insisted on the radical and total freedom of the subject. You are the sum of your actions. What you do is what you are. There are, there are no other kind of values or realities in the world other than human action. 
And so, if one connects Kierkegaard to that kind of thinking, it's very hard to see where the conversation might get going. And it is true that there are important connections between Kierkegaard and existentialism. Kierkegaard himself said, subjectivity is truth. Then, of course, the question is, what did Kierkegaard mean by subjectivity? Did he mean the same as Sartre might have meant by it? One of the most read passages in all of Kierkegaard's writings is his discussion of the figure of Abraham based on the the Genesis story of the near sacrifice of Isaac uh, in his book Fear and Trembling. This is almost certainly the most read uh, bit of Kierkegaard. And here you can see both how he might be uh, an ancestor of existentialism but also how there's something else going on there. For, For Kierkegaard, the interesting thing about Abraham in the biblical version of the story is that he's called to do something that seen from a human ethical point of view is a completely abhorrent crime to murder his own son to betraying even worse than murder in general to betray and destroy the bonds that ought to bind a father to to the care and nurture of, of his son and This involves Abraham in what Kierkegaard rather complexly calls a teleological suspension of the ethical. In other words, Abraham suspends all moral considerations for the sake of his action. Now this does kind of tend to depict Abraham as a bit like one of the sort of existential heroes from one of Sartre's plays or even a bit like Nietzsche's Zarathustra, someone who makes up his own values. But of course, also crucial for Kierkegaard is that all of this rests on the fact that Abraham believes himself to be called by God to do this. This is not just Abraham as an arbitrary subject saying, this is what I choose to do, which might be how Sartre would depict it, but this is what I am called to do by the God whom I know I can trust, whom I have put my faith in. Uh, so it's a little bit more complicated in the case of of Kierkegaard. Uh, Note the title of the book, Fear and Trembling. Abraham does go beyond the ethical, beyond normal moral boundaries, but he does so in fear and trembling, and he knows that what he is about to do is a terrible thing, and he knows the full weight uh, of all the the possible negative um, ways of, of looking at it. In fact, as we go deeper into Kierkegaard's authorship, it becomes clear that One of the main threads is the critique of what we might call autonomy. The the belief that human beings are, in a sense, the creators of their own values, even their own reality. The form in which Kierkegaard encountered that belief was not Sartrean existentialism, of course, but German idealism in such figures as Kant, Schelling, Fichte, and Hegel, and already in Kant stresses the role of autonomy in moral life, Uh, perhaps most clearly in his little essay, What is Enlightenment?, where Kant says becoming enlightened is basically making up your mind for yourself, taking responsibility for your own moral decisions, not doing what your parents or your teacher, least of all what your priest tells you to do, but deciding for yourself on the basis of what you regard as reasonable action. 
and that is to be enlightened. Kant's successors went even further, and clearly for Fichte and for some of the Romantics, the, the self created itself more or less out of nothing, where in the Christian narrative God created the world out of narrative, uh, out of nothing. For, for Fichte, the human self, in a sense, created itself out of, of nothing, created not only its own values, not only decided about its own moral actions, but created its own world. And it's, this was connected with the huge influence Fichte's thought had on the Romantics, because, of course, the artist provided a wonderful example of how this might work out. Someone, a supremely creative artist or, or poet, who simply invented their own world, who created something new, who created their own personality. Uh, and it, it was really in this Romantic form that, that Kierkegaard first in a sense, uh, encountered the, this faith in absolute autonomy. And his first major work, which was actually his master's thesis, not many master's theses are still being discussed 200 years later. Um, most of them certainly don't deserve to be. Um, this one was called On the Concept of Irony. Irony became an important part of this romantic be belief in autonomy uh, because the ironist is someone who doesn't identify, as it were, with any particular action, any particular word, any particular tradition, any particular image, but he floats, as it were, uh, above all of these. He can be whatever he likes to be at any time. He doesn't have to commit to anything. He doesn't let himself be defined by relationships or obligations. He simply enjoys his own freedom to be whoever he wants to be, however he wants to be, whenever and with whoever he wants uh, to, to be it. Kierkegaard uh, saw this as an outcome of, of Fichte's belief in the self-creativity of, of the I, and he regarded it as ultimately extremely destructive because it caused a split between the self, or, or it reinforced uh, a split between the self and its world, lacking a world, lacking real solid relationships, whether of knowledge or, or of love, the ironic subject uh, becomes empty and ultimately, Kierkegaard argued, uh, also tedious and, and, and boring. So that, that was a kind of academic approach to it, but his first, as it were, free book, his first big book, Either Or, he returned to the subject, but in a much more uh, dramatic way. As the title suggests, it's a work in two parts, either and or. Uh, and the first part consists of a series of articles and letters, mostly to do with art uh, in one form or another, and portraying an aesthetic life based upon these romantic ideals of irony. The second part uh, consists in two long letters uh, from a middle-aged friend of the author of the first part, kind of pointing out to him everything that's wrong with his life, and summoning him to, to as it were, get real, to grow up, um, to get married, to get a job, and to become a serious person. The culminating part of the first volume is The Seducer's Diary, which is the story of a seduction. There's nothing kind of particularly um, uh, sexual about it, because precisely the interesting thing for Kierkegaard's seducer is not the actual sex act at the end of it, although that does happen, but is in the way in which he is able to not only invent himself, 
but to create situations in which all the other characters, especially of course the women, but not only the women, play exactly the parts he wants them to play. In other words, he doesn't just write a poem, he uses other people as the materials for his poem and he manipulates them to create out of his network of social relationships a kind of work of art. And then what Kierkegaard shows in the second volume uh, really is, is, is the em emptiness uh, and shallowness and as I say ultimately actually the, the tedium of such a kind of life. Now the seducer is, is an extreme of one kind of view of, of, of the self as self-invention but Kierkegaard also uh, encountered other versions of this that at first glance looked very different but still uh, perhaps um, were based on the same principle. So turning to, to philosophy and we could see in relation to religion for example that logic and human logic well, you might say human beings don't invent logic that the laws of logic uh, in a sense are what they are and have nothing to do with us or, or our will yet human beings can use logic in such a way as to set a limit to God to what God can be to what reality can be and so Kierkegaard could come to see even the laws of logic as actually sometimes used as part of the human project of defining the world in terms of human interests and setting up a barrier or a wall against being open to, as it were, a more expansive, a diviner view of things. And this is a central part of his critique of Hegelianism, which, as he saw it, reduced everything to a kind of logic and didn't allow space for divine freedom. That's why Kierkegaard spoke of the encounter of the human divine as an absolute paradox, which defied all the laws of logic because according to the laws of logic the divine and the human shouldn't be able to come together least of all come together in a single person uh, such as Jesus Christ but it also included history and for the Hegelians the unfolding of history this is a very kind of optimistic 19th century view of course was the unfolding of the laws of reason not just the laws of reason but the laws of divine reason. History was in a sense the unfolding of God, the life of God in the world. And this of course could easily lead and did lead to God being defined in terms of the history of particular peoples or of particular political movements, either nationalism or communism or various other of the ideologies that emerged in this period. Uh, and from Kierkegaard's point of view, again, this in a sense was, was, was basically redesigning God in the image of human projects, in the image of human nation building or building of certain political structures that he saw as essentially the self-divinization of the human beings, the supplanting of the Christian God-man with the 19th century man God uh, so that uh, for example the extreme Scandinavian nationalists of his time effectively uh, as he saw it simply made the race the Scandinavian peoples play the part of God but of course all sorts of other national groups in Europe were doing the same thing at the same time 
Now, many of, of Kierkegaard's best-known works have, you may say, a very negative tone. They're attacks on one or other of these distortions, uh, as, as he sees it, of the human-God relationship. Attacks on romantic irony, attacks on Hegelian logic, attacks on ideologies of history, of nationalism, of politics. Uh, and they're often very polemical, sometimes very witty uh, uh, as well, sometimes kind of rather nasty too, uh, for, for that matter. And, this is, uh, and because these, many of these are really the most read of Kierkegaard's works, and they have shaped the particular image of him, and it, that's largely where his impact on 20th century existentialism is to be found. But in fact, all of that is only one half of his authorship. What he himself, most of these books were written under pseudonyms uh, and he did that very deliberately to show that these, this was not, as it were, his view or did not exhaust his view. And he called them sometimes his aesthetic works and alongside those he also wrote a number of works uh, which he called his upbuilding or edifying works which were little religious meditations that came out in very small volumes of two or three at a time and he brought them out two or three times uh, a year and these were very very different uh, he called these two kinds of writing the works of his left hand which were the aesthetic pseudonymous works and the works of his right hand which were the upbuilding religious works only as he said the world took with its right hand what he offered with the left and with its left hand what he offered uh, with the right. In other words, everyone thought all this uh, pseudonymous stuff about romanticism and Hegelianism and logic and paradox is all terribly exciting and interesting and they devoured it voraciously and no one or not very many people paid much attention to the, to the rest because they thought that's just kind of boring religious stuff. Um, we don't want to do that. And, and so, and, and yet that in a sense was regarded by Kierkegaard as his real authorship. It's from those writings that I've I just translated this anthology that Adam referred to on Kierkegaard's spiritual writings. Now, it would be tempting uh, to see the difference between these two groups of writings as the difference between negative and positive, in, in a sense that the one are writings attacking false views of the self, and then the other are, as it were, promoting a true view of the self. That would be a little bit misleading because the religious writings, too, have a certain negativity. In, them. In, in one of them he explores the word edifying or upbuilding and says it's an interesting word isn't it because it sounds like you know, you're building up uh, he says but of course before you can build up you have to build down you have to dig out the fund, lay the foundations you have to go down to somewhere that's kind of really solid you have, have to remove the ground and you have to knock down before you can build up and one of the themes that comes out again and again in these, these writings is that before we can, as it were, be built up in God, we have to become as nothing. The truth of subjectivity is annihilation, and only when we are annihilated have become nothing are we as we really are. And it's only in this nothingness that the self really discovers the truth, not only of itself, but of its God relationship. So here's an extract. Now, time to come to Kierkegaard. In one of these discourses entitled, To Need God, 
constitutes a human being's highest perfection. He writes, He who is himself altogether capable of nothing cannot undertake even the smallest thing without God's help, that is to say, without being aware that there is a God. He who knows from his own experience that he can do nothing at all has every day and in every moment the wished-for and incontrovertible opportunity of experiencing that God lives. Experiencing that God lives and experiencing our own incapacity and annihilation are therefore interconnected. In another discourse, the person who prays aright strives in prayer and triumphs by allowing God to triumph. He writes, At last it seemed to him that he's become an utter nothing. Now the moment has come. Who should the one who thus struggles wish to be like, if not God? But if he himself is anything in his own eyes, or wants to be anything, then this something is enough to prevent the likeness from appearing. Only when he himself becomes utterly nothing, only then can God shine through him, so that he becomes like God. Whatever he may otherwise amount to, he cannot express God's likeness, but God can only impress his likeness in him when he's become nothing. And he offers another image. When the sea exerts all its might, in other words, when the waves are all kind of tossing and, and turning, then it is impossible for it to reflect the image of the heavens and even the smallest movement that the reflection means that the reflection is not quite pure. When it becomes still and deep, then heaven's image sinks down into its nothingness. It's a kind of wonderful image, and those of you who, who know the Baltic know, of course, it, it can become much, much calmer than uh, we're ever normally likely to see the English Channel or, or the North Sea and acquires a kind of translucent, glassy quality, which I think is just what, what he's referring to here. Of course, there's an interesting set of images there, and they're slightly self-contradictory because he says the self has to become transparent so that God can shine through it. Then again, it has to become still and pure so that it reflects uh, the divine light and glory. And one might say, well, these two aren't the same, that something that's transparent isn't reflecting and something that's reflecting isn't transparent. And uh, interestingly, Kierkegaard probably knew an image you find in Meister Eckhart where he talks about a bucket of water with a mirror placed at the bottom of it. Uh, as, as an image of the self's relation to God and there too of course you get both that the, the divine light goes through the water until it meets the mirror and then shines back out of it uh, and in another uh, religious book that Kierkegaard certainly did owned by the pietist writer Johann Arndt was an illustration on the first page of a mirror lying on a table in fact and of light shining through a window on, onto the mirror so this interesting tension here I think between these two images of transparency and, and reflection transparency of course the self becomes completely suffused with God uh, with divine light reflection is still uh, an element of, of difference and play if, if you like reflecting back so for Kierkegaard, against all the kind of ideologies of romanticism and Hegelianism, and one could say existentialism, human beings don't make themselves. Human beings can't exist on their own, but they need God. I mentioned the title of a discourse, human beings 
uh, highest perfection is to need God. And the word need is interesting word, of course, those of us who are parents and have had daughters kind of, you know, know the mum, I need a new dress for Friday night. Um, but, you know, I got you a new dress last week. Yeah, but I don't, that's horrible. No one will wear that. Um, there are different kinds of, of, of need. Kierkegaard's Danish term, tränger till, actually is kind of like driving towards, or something kind of pushing towards, an urge towards God. We have a compulsion, if you like, towards God. So there's something quite active in it. Um, but also, I think, if you think, say, of, well, there's the needing the new dress, well, that's not really a need, that's just a want. Then as if you're in the kind of desert and you're near death and you need some water and you say, I need water. Well, you really do need water and if you don't get it, you die. And that's need that has to do with a lack. But then you could say, well, I need air. Well, I have air. I'm breathing now. Of course, if I don't get air, I, I, I will die. But I do have it, but I need it. I depend on it. And I, and I think this is in its third one, in a way, is, is very much what Kierkegaard is saying, we, we need God in the way we need air. It's not something we don't have. It's, it's not as if we're not, you know, our need of God is not like that of the person in the desert who needs water, because we already have God, but we still need God. In other words, this comes to the title of my talk, really, human beings are infinitely and absolutely dependent on God. The most persistent image in his writings for this absolute dependence comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you be familiar with this where Jesus says, Consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. The lilies don't work, and yet even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The birds don't work, they don't sow, they gather into barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. And the life of the lilies and the birds becomes one of the most consistent images Kierkegaard uses for the proper relation between human beings and God. And he, he draws a, a, a distinction between different kinds of, of dependence, that our absolute dependence on God frees us, in fact, from all other kinds of dependence and rel- relativity. In fact, he, he uh, expands, sorry about that, he expands on the lilies and the birds as we find them in the Sermon on the Mount and he makes up some of his own stories about them to kind of underline the point. So he, he pictures, for example, uh, a, a lily, a little flower growing on, in the field in a sort of out-of-the-way place and this lily is visited by a bird who, of course, flies far away and goes to different places, and the bird comes and says to the lily, you know, uh, the the other places I go are much more interesting than this, Uh, and fantastic landscape, and the flowers there are really beautiful, much more beautiful than you are, you know, everything around here is a little bit dull and mediocre. And, And the lily had been very happy up till that point, but now, of course, it started to get a bit miserable and to kind of think, well, you know, I've got a bad deal here. Uh, So eventually they agree that um, the bird will help the lily and one morning it uproots it and flies off with it, but of course it withers and dies on root and and never gets there. That's a rather grim story, but kind of 19th century fairy stories. The other one's a bit grim too, uh, and and goes to the bird and there's a wood pigeon um, that again has always got enough to eat, it's always been quite content with its life, 
uh, but near where it is is a little uh, farm and it gets talking to some of the tame doves that live in the dovecot on the farm and the tame doves say, you know, well, it must be you know, rather worrying to be like you because we can see when harvest comes and the farmer fills up the barns that we're going to have enough food all through the winter and we don't need to worry about uh, uh, looking out for ourselves because food's always found for us. And so the, the wild pigeon again becomes a bit discontented uh, and thinks it would rather like to be like the, the tame pigeon. And so it hits on a plan and it goes into the dovecot and thinks that if it goes there then it'll be fed along with the others because the farmer comes in, sees a wild pigeon in the middle of his tame pigeons, takes it out and has it for dinner. Um, to which Kierkegaard comments, We often find people quarrelling with another, one another in an ill-tempered dispute that hinges on the comparison between dependence and independence and how fortunate it is to be independent and how burdensome to be dependent. And yet, and yet, human language and human thought have never discovered a more beautiful image of independence than heaven's poor bird. And yet, and yet, nothing would be more peculiar than to say that it would be burdensome to be as light as a bird. To be dependent on one's wealth is not only to be dependent, it's to suffer a burdensome thraldom. To be dependent on God, utterly dependent, is to be independent. The anxious wood pigeon was foolishly afraid of becoming entirely dependent on God and so lost its independence and ceased to be an image of independence, ceased to be heaven's poor bird that depends entirely on God. Dependence on God is the only independence, for God is without weight. Only earthly things, and especially earthly treasures, have weight. Therefore those who are entirely dependent on him are light. That's how it is in the case of the poor, when content with being human, they look to the bird under heaven and look to it under heaven, to which those who pray always look up. Those who pray, no, they're independent, but they give thanks. So this is the kind of basic structure, I think, that's at the heart of Kierkegaard's religious thought. Self-knowledge knowledge of God, thanksgiving, being present to oneself. These are part of a, a, a unitary matrix. I come to, come to spirit. At the beginning of one of his late books, Kierkegaard defines what it is for a human being to be a self, and he does so in terms of spirit, one of the key words of the 19th century, and in Danish as in other languages, again, connected with the word for breath. Now this is very complicated and it's famous for being one of the more complicated sentences in Kierkegaard, so here goes. The human being is spirit, but what is spirit? Spirit is the self, but what is the self? The self is a relationship that relates itself to itself, or it is that in the relationship that the relationship relates itself to itself. The self is not the relationship but that the relationship relates itself to itself. In other words, he's saying that a human being is not simply body and soul, but the human being is the relation between body and soul. And that the relation relates to itself means that we have an active 
pre-responsible role in that relationship. I mean, our body isn't just dumped on us. Our soul isn't just dumped on us. We are a particular, each of us is a particular unity of body and soul that we inhabit, that we live, that is ourselves. Uh, and it's not just something that happens far away and that we observe from a distance. However, so that there is an element of choice in being a self, uh, we take different attitudes to our bodies, to our mental endowments, to our psychological history, how we are in relation to these things. We, we have a part to play here. There is an element of freedom. Again, this connects Kierkegaard to existentialism. However, nevertheless, this entire complex of body, soul, and free relationship is itself dependent on something else. This whole complex is dependent on a larger whole. And so for Kierkegaard it's crucial that this whole dynamic of being and becoming a self needs, as he puts it, to be transparently grounded in the power that established it. To be a self, to become a self, is freely to choose yourself. You don't just happen. For you to be you, you have to choose it. But it is also freely to choose yourself as you are from the hand of God, as infinitely, absolutely dependent on God. So being present to yourself, being who you are, here and now, is simply being in the presence of God being dependent on God, only seen from another angle. From a discourse on joy, written at the same time as sickness unto death, what is joy? What is being joyful? This is in the extract from what we might look at in the seminar later. What is joy or what is being joyful? In truth, it is to be present to oneself. But to be present to oneself in truth that is this today. It is this to be today. In truth, to be today. And to the same degree that it's true that you are today, and in the same degree that you're entirely present to yourself in being today, in that same degree will misfortunes next day not exist for you. Joy is the present time where the entire stress lies on the present time. That's why God is blessed, for in all eternity he says, today. He who is eternally and infinitely present to himself in being today. And that's why the lily and the bird are joy, because silently and obediently they are entirely present to themselves in being today. That's actually from a, a three-part uh, discourse where on the lilies and the birds, which he puts under three headings, silence, obedience and joy and again he sees each of these as being interconnected and what we see out there with the lilies and the birds is silence, silence before God and as he says even when the birds sing or the wind blows through the trees or, or the sea roars nevertheless in an important sense it's silence uh, and it's also obedience, it is simply being as God has made it to be 
and therefore it is also joyful. But of course he's very aware that human beings are not birds or lilies. They are just as they are, but we have this kind of little thing of reflection, of freedom, of choice. We are not simply what we are. We have to become what we are. And because of this, of course, we're um, exposed, as it were, to all the kind of anxieties and worries that the bird and the lilies don't have. We worry about tomorrow, about what we shall eat tomorrow, about what we shall wear, what we shall eat and drink, and of course we worry about all sorts of other things, and if we need to take the car to the garage, or whether we're going to catch our train, or whether the train will be on time, and you know, innumerable, innumerable things that birds and lilies never have to think about. Uh, and we have to, in this situation, as it were, recall ourselves to the simple basic truth of our being which is that simple basic truth figured in the lilies and the birds. In some of these discourses Kierkegaard therefore builds up as it were a threefold picture between the simple life of the lilies and birds who are as they are have no choice about it they simply are that. Human beings who um, those of you who know the Sermon on the Mount will know, you know, Jesus goes on to say, you know, don't be like the lily and the bird, don't worry about what you're to eat or what you're to drink. These are the things that the Gentiles or the pagans seek after. And so then Kierkegaard says, well, the second phase is, as it were, like the Gentiles or the pagans, uh, people whose lives are preoccupied with all these worries about mortgages and houses and trains and transport and this, that, and the next thing. Uh, and then thirdly, there are those who have used their freedom, their choice, not to tear themselves away from their natural spontaneous being, but in the middle of all these distractions, in the middle of all these preoccupations and worries and anxieties, freely return to that initial state of integration. These are, as it were, he says, uh, the Christians, by which he doesn't, of course, mean those who simply happen to attend Christian church, but those who have truly taken to heart and lived by the essence of Christ's teaching. But he has one more image uh, for, for this, which uh, I will go on to. Because another important aspect of our being absolutely dependent on God is that this is not just a state of being it is also a state of love submitting to our absolute dependence on God isn't like as it were submitting ourselves to some dominating law or law giver it is expressing joyfully with love what we want to be and the image that Kierkegaard most frequently uses for this is another one from the Gospels, from Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is sitting, has been invited to supper at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and a woman bursts in, and of course all men there, um, but, a, but a woman bursts in, what's worse, she's known to be a sinful woman, possibly, the implication is a prostitute, or at least someone who leads a pretty loose life, and she goes and throws herself at the feet of Jesus and anoints him with oil and washes him with her hair. Uh, and everyone is deeply shocked by this and says if he was really a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman it was and wouldn't have anything to do with her. 
Uh, but Jesus then turns to them and says, um, uh, tells this parable about two men who are released a debt. One is released 50 denarii, the other 500. Uh, and he says, who will love most? The one who has forgiven 50 or the one who has forgiven 500? The one who has forgiven 500, of course. He says, her many sins are forgiven her because she loved much. Kiko comes back to this image again and again and again. And the woman for him is the perfect image of someone who has become nothing who has ceased to care about all the things that everybody else cares about and cares only about expressing her love at the feet of the Saviour. So here's a passage from that. She sits weeping at his feet. She has entirely forgotten about herself, forgotten every thought that might inwardly disturb her. She's quite still, as still as the sick child that's quietened at its mother's breast where it cries itself out and forgets about itself. For it's no help to forget such thoughts and still to remember oneself. If one is to succeed, one must forget oneself. That's why she's weeping, and all as she weeps, she forgets herself. Oh, blessed tears that give the blessing of forgetfulness. She's entirely forgotten herself, forgotten her surroundings with everything there that might disturb her. For since they were almost designed to remind her in fearful and painful ways about who she was, it would be impossible to forget such surroundings if one did not forget oneself. But she weeps, and all as she weeps, she forgets about herself. Her blessed tears of self-forgetfulness, such that as she weeps, she's not even once reminded of what she's weeping about, so completely has she forgotten herself. But the true expression for loving much is precisely to forget oneself completely. As long as one remembers oneself, one can indeed love, but one doesn't love much. And to the extent that one remembers oneself, one loves so much the less. She, however, has completely forgotten herself. But the greater the incentive that the moment offers to remember or think about oneself, if one nevertheless forgets oneself and thinks of the other, so much the more does one love. And for Kikior, this isn't just a religious relationship of sinners and saviours, as it were, but is an epitome of the sort of relationship that should hold between human beings, between all of us, because basically we are all in the absolutely same relationship to God. We are all absolutely dependent in this moment for our being here now. There is no difference for any human being in that basic situation. So we have no grounds or no reason to prefer our own interest essentially, to that of anyone else. That is a purely perspectival uh, illusion from that point of view. And so he, he goes on. It is like this in loving relationships between two people. Those who in the moment when they're most preoccupied with themselves and in the moment that's most precious to them forget themselves and think about the other love much. The one who is himself hungry but forgets about himself and gives the little that he has, which is only enough for one person, to another, loves much. The one who is in peril but who forgets about himself and gives the other the only life belt, loves much. So too in the case of those who in the moment when everything within them and everything around them not only reminds them of themselves, but forces them against their will to remember themselves, when they nevertheless forget themselves, they love much, as she did. So love 
is the natural response, the spontaneous response to the recognition that we are all equally dependent on God in exactly the same way. And crucially for Kierkegaard, worship and love are two sides of the same coin. Well, we've come a long way from Jean-Paul Sartre, who didn't believe in either worship or love. Um, uh, and we've seen how perhaps Kierkegaard can, along a certain line, be a, a, an intellectual ancestor of Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, and he remains historically and intellectually important in that kind of way, but it seems to me that one of the more interesting things about Kierkegaard is not his, what is culturally specific about him, but what is perennial about his description and presentation in a 19th century idiom, of course, of the human condition before the one, unchangeable, omnipresent God of love on whom all things at all times in each minute are absolutely dependent. Thank you. Thank you.